0: One of the things that I've done often in conversations about politics at Berkeley is I ask the question of whatever audience I'm addressing, how many of you come from mixed political families? And I always raise my own hand. And I'm always surprised at how many people in whatever kind of audience also raise their hands. And so we have a kind of, I think, mistaken impression that the world of families is more uniform than in fact it is, and that many people have real differences of political opinion in their family, and most of the time they learn how to deal with it. I think it's so critical. There are so many issues in our world in which people of integrity and principle disagree, and you have to create space for that.
1: You are listening to Change Lab Conversations on Transformation and Creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, President of Art Center College of Design. There are many metaphors I could use to describe Carol Kriss' achievements. Most of them have to do with breaking things like glass ceilings or barriers or new ground in Victorian literary scholarship. But none of those do justice to the sheer scope of the professional arc Carol has traversed en route to her current role as the first female chancellor of UC Berkeley. Carol has spent the better part of five decades entering academic spaces and roles previously reserved for men but she has less interest in reflecting on her own pioneering achievements than in her passion for participating in the collective march toward institutional progress. In fact, from the moment she began ascending through the leadership ranks at Berkeley and then as president of Smith College, she's been a vector for positive change through her first-rate mind, her warmth, humanity, and passion for the transformative power of education. she certainly had an effect on me. We met at UC Berkeley when I was a newly minted PhD teaching in the Dramatic Art Department, and she was Dean of the College for Letters and Science. Though she might not have known it at the time, I was inspired by her and viewed her as a mentor. I greatly admired her forthright and compassionate approach to leadership and marveled at how she could give equal voice to the many varied factions comprising California's largest and most prestigious public research institution. Carol is the rare university administrator who sees her work as an art form. I relished the opportunity to reconnect with her about her trailblazing journey to the chancellorship of UC Berkeley. I loved her notion of her role as storyteller in chief and was compelled by what she anticipates from the road ahead. Please enjoy my conversation with Carol Christ. I wanted to specifically take you back to uh, 1966 when you entered Yale. Well, there's actually two moments, 1966 when you entered Yale as a grad student. And by the way, if you could just explain, my understanding is that Yale was not coeducational at that point. So it's interesting that you went at that moment. And then when you arrived at Berkeley in 1970 in the middle of the Vietnam War and particularly the Cambodian campaign, I'm just interested in looking at those two moments and for you to tell a bit of your story from that particular time in your life.
0: Yes, certainly. So, it was true when I went to Yale, there were no undergraduate women at Yale until Uh. the last year that I was there. So, I did my PhD at Yale. I was an undergraduate at Douglas College. And uh, I remember one of my very first experiences at Yale was that um, a friend that I had recently made, a man in one of my classes, asked me to meet him at the Elizabethan Club. And so, I very, with great excitement, went to the Elizabethan Club. as one of the many clubs Yale had. And went in the door, and I was quickly escorted out because this was not a space in which women Mm. were allowed. Mm. Uh, Yale was very much a male-dominated institution, even though the program that I was in the PhD program in English was probably about 50% women, Uh, but um, in my last year, women undergraduates were admitted to Yale for the first time, and there were signs all over the place, uh, welcome women to Yale, and I kept thinking... You know, it made us feel so invisible (laughs) as graduate women. (laughs) But those were turbulent times in the East as well as the West Coast. I remember very vividly a big demonstration uh, in support of the Black Panthers on the New Haven Green in which uh, the then president uh, just opened the doors of Yale to the demonstrators. So it was a time of a lot of political activity. in in support of the Black Panthers, in opposition to the Vietnam War. Tragically, our nation's leadership, while striving for peace, has adopted a course that makes real peace unlikely. It is a policy that believes we can brutalize the North Vietnamese into making concessions at the negotiating table, that we can convert by words alone, a corrupt Saigon government into a government representative and responsive to the needs of its people. And those were also the early days of feminism in which I and my friends were eagerly reading the feminist books that were just then being published by Kate Millett. And so it was a heady time. Although that headiness, the political headiness, didn't really penetrate to the English department or the curriculum in English that I was studying. And then I went to Berkeley, as you say, in the fall of 1970. I had never been west of Philadelphia when I got the job at Berkeley, so this was going to be a huge move for me. And when I got here, I found it so liberating. I remember one of my early weeks here I passed a woman who was carrying a poinsettia plant, so this must have been September or so, in the street and I guess I looked surprised because she said, Christmas is coming very soon now. Christmas is coming very soon. There was just a sense of such freedom and eccentricity in the city that I found it very freeing to, you know, you could just be whoever you were. And I was told not to bother preparing the last third of my class. I would never get to teach it, the students would be on strike. But in fact, the students never were on strike during the time that I was a faculty member in the English department. But it was certainly, and still is, as you know well, a very, very political community. But one of enormous, um, oh, just everybody feels like they can question anything, that they can think things new, and that extends from the world of physics to the world of politics.
1: Sounds like you had a great warm up at Yale, but coming to Berkeley must have been at that particular moment must have been an amazing experience. It,
0: it really was an amazing experience, and there's so many things. I mean, there's the free speech movement, but then there's the Third World Strike, the the founding right. of Ethnic Studies. Uh, we just last year celebrated the 50th anniversary of Ethnic Studies, I and mean, there are just so many exciting things that went on. Often, when I talk to people at Berkeley, I say this is one of the few university campuses in the United States where you feel history is being made all the time. Exactly.
1: And then moving forward to you taught for several years, and then you began an administrative life as chair of the English department, dean of humanities, when, certainly when I was there, and provost as well. And I, I suppose I have two questions for you there as well. And that is, one, why the administrative life? And what did it trigger in you that made you feel like you wanted to pursue that particular experience in the academy. And two, you know, you're constantly known as the first woman to hold this office or that office, all the way to the chancellor's office. And it'd be interesting if you could reflect for us a little bit about what that kind of trailblazer element has meant for you.
0: Thank you. Uh-huh. I should say the first administrative job that I had was not chair of the English department. It was actually as the uh, Chancellor Special Assistant for the Status of Women. And Title IX Compliance Coordinator.
1: Oh well, what year would that have been?
0: Uh, it was in the mid-80s at some point. And it's a hard, hard title to fit on a business card. I think. <laughs> and the job was what the title said it was. You were responsible for being the voice in California Hall, which is the administration building, who was really looking at issues concerning women. And I had always been a feminist, so these causes were dear to my heart. But what I discovered in that job, which was a two-year term, was that I loved doing administration. I loved seeing how the university worked. I really enjoyed working with a group of people to achieve some institutional change. And that's entirely different from your work as an English professor, where the research life of an English professor is pretty solitary. You read books, you do research about them, you write about them. And it's also different, although more akin to teaching. So that was when I first got a taste of administration and enjoyed it. Um, Then the next job I did is as chair of the English department. That's just a job, as you know well, that lots of faculty members do. You take your turn at it. And I enjoyed it. Um, I'll tell you a funny story about it. When I took the job, my son was about eight. And he said, Mom now that you're the chair of the English department, is your chair bigger than everybody else's? And I realized that, in fact, it was, that the kind of wheeled black leather chair in the English department behind the chair's desk was, in fact, the biggest chair in the department. And that came to me to symbolize the somewhat ambiguous position you had in relationship to your colleagues. They were still your colleagues, but they Uh, often attributed, more than you had, some um, mysterious authority over them. But, you know, then I I was asked to be Dean of Humanities, I really enjoyed that. I think it wasn't until I became the Provost of Letters and Science that I really started thinking, yes, this is deeply gratifying to me, it is intellectually exciting to me, it uses a different set of capacities than my work did as a professor. So it was really a transition I made probably in the 90s to thinking about administration as my career. Although I did go back after I finished serving as provost in 2000 to 2002 and uh, went back to the faculty. That's what I thought I was going to do. And I discovered at that point, I had really become an administrator. That was my identity so um that it was about then that uh, smith college started um contacting me and and that's it was a different chapter of my life but in terms of being the first woman this the first woman that i have to admit i don't think about it very often i actually think if you're constantly focused on issues of gender it keeps you from focusing on the work at hand so i know there are things that uh parts of my Character, I guess you would say, or my being in the world—that certainly are, you know, a result of of being a woman. But it's not that I think of myself as, oh, I'm the first woman X or oh, I'm the first woman Y. I just—it was never a big piece of what I was thinking about. I was just always thinking about what the work was.
1: Right, although in your graduate school days at Yale, and certainly when you arrived in the English Department in 1970, I mean, you really were a minority, right? I mean, as a woman in a department pretty much filled with men, correct?
0: Yeah, absolutely. At that point, when I joined the English Department, there were 84 faculty, four of them were women. Um, the percent of women on the faculty when I joined uh, Berkeley was 3%. You feel yeah, exactly. You feel know, yeah. like there aren't many people who look like you. And when I first came to Berkeley, I was often mistaken for a student. People didn't think I was a professor.
1: Yeah. And I think, too, there's an experience there that helps your own sensitivity and your own compassion to so much of what we're looking at today. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's entirely relevant. And it's interesting to hear you reflect, too, on what you got out of administration, too. And You know, for me, just to reflect for a moment, it was a new form of directing for the theater for me. In fact, I often talk about the fact that being a theater director was great preparation for being a college president. Uh In other words, it draws on a kind of creative energy for me that I thrive on.
0: Yeah, for me too. And I often say I like hard problems. I've certainly got a lot of them (laughs)
1: Yeah. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. I want to talk a little bit about leadership with you. It's a good segue, but you know, the listener should understand my personal experience with you that as a young and uh, somewhat, I would say, intimidated faculty member in the drama department in the 1980s, you emerged as a kind of mentor for me. I recognized in you a kind of leader of strength, of formidable intelligence and purpose and care and fairness. And um, what I do with great Mentors or teachers in my life, as I seem to metabolize them, I think about them. And as I went on to my own career as a leader and as an administrator, I want you to know that I feel like I metabolized much of what you brought and what you modeled for me in my own development uh, as a leader. And it boils down to me to a kind of special combination of a certain kind of firm conviction that you bring, blended with this gentle wisdom that you hold. And it gave me great strength. And I want you to know that. And I want to thank you for that. It was a very important learning for me in my own life, in my own career.
0: Well, thank you. I, I, I really That's really moving that you say that. I, I'm i sure you've had the experience of getting a letter decades after you've taught a course from a student saying, that course you've taught meant so much to me. And when you're- I don't know if this is true about being a director, but I know being a teacher, you feel like you're throwing your bread on the waters and you mm-hmm. have no idea. <laughs> whether, you know, it comes back to you. And I I think that's true of being an administrator. So thank you for returning some bread that I threw on the waters.
1: Indeed. Well, thank you. You are a very, very important figure in my life. So let's probe a little deeper into leadership. And I love that you talk about being a leader as a storyteller in chief and uh, would love to know a little more about what you mean by that. I also have my own kind of question where that's concerned, and that is, to what extent do we mirror and retell a story of what was or even is in a present moment? And to what extent do we create a future as leaders by the very stories we tell?
0: Yeah, that's such a good question. It's something that I think about all the time, because I think that one of the jobs of a leader is to both create community and create momentum in the community. And in order to do that, you need to tell a story about where an institution has been and where it's going so that you create for the people who care about this institution, whatever the institution is, its trajectory in time and i think stories have to be remade a lot so i'll use an example from um from smith where i was you know thought deeply about the college's history when i was president of smith and it was trying to find a story in its history that was consistent with the direction in which you were trying to move the institution forward. So it wasn't the smith of pumps and cashmere and pearls. It was the smith of pioneering women through the decades. And so I think you always have to think about the history in connection to the arc that you're trying to traverse, that that's, to me, really important. And, and you know as well as I do, um, people love stories. We're storytelling people. So I've found narrative, in many ways, the most effective um, means of communication.
1: And in that narrative, maybe I'm extending the metaphor a little too far, there's also dialogue. I mean, they're they're novels as well as plays, right? And the stories get told in a kind of conversation that we lead and that we orchestrate.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And one of the things that's always kind of amused me about being a leader is that I sometimes will develop a phrase for something that I'm trying to achieve. And then the phrase will get taken in by the community and becomes part of its language. And then it'll often be, you know, sort of given back to me often in a challenging way. Like one of the things I first said when I was chancellor at Berkeley is I want to make sure that our uh, students don't just survive, that they thrive. And how the students being students are always saying, we want not to survive, we want to thrive without any sense (laughs) that these words came from me in the first place. So I I think, yes, of course, there's dialogue. And I mean, one of the things that it's not as um, often seen as, as essential a piece of leadership as it is, is really listening and being able to incorporate the things that people say to you in how you represent the the institution.
1: One of the challenges I certainly face and recognize, and I know this is true in your experience as well, but sometimes that dialogue is filled with disagreement and that disagreement can become quite extreme and the animosity and difficulties in people. Seeing things in different ways can be pretty painful and I think we're bad at disagreeing. I think we don't know how to do it and I think we've, for whatever reasons we've gotten worse. I'm curious, A, about your reflections on that, how you deal with that. And I'm wondering whether or not some of the challenges that you've faced on campus uh, regarding free speech issues, Ben Shapiro or the Milo Yiannopoulos challenges, I'm wondering if that has taught you something about what one needs to do in handling disagreement or bringing it to some level of civility or to some place where the institution, the university can move forward and grow from it and learn from it collectively somehow?
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting question and I have a few things to say about it. One is, I'll tell you a story. This was a really important learning experience. It happened when I was um, chair of the English department. And uh, that year, we had a lot of students who wanted to take our senior honors seminar, many more than there were places in the class. And a student wanted to have a conversation with me who was incredibly angry that he didn't get a place in the honors seminar. And he was really just going on and on. He was really, really angry. And then I said to him, I'm really sorry. If I were in your position, I would feel exactly like you do. You're so disappointed. You're so angry. And all of a sudden, he just deflated. And Mm. he said, that's all I wanted someone to say.
1: He was heard.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think that's such a big piece of things. And sometimes it's hard to hear because you want, but your first impulse is often to be defensive, but that's a piece of things. One of the things that I've done often in conversations about politics at Berkeley is I ask the question of whatever audience I'm addressing, how many of you come from mixed political families? And I always raise my own hand. And I'm always surprised at how many people in whatever kind of audience also raise their hands. And so we have a kind of, I think, mistaken impression that the world of families is more uniform than in fact it is, and that many people have real differences of political opinion in their family, and most of the time they learn how to deal with it. The students have been wonderful. I I talk a lot about respectful disagreement and learning to how to have arguments in a civil way in public. And I've had some students that have done programs um, in which they've invited me to participate in this way. So I think it's so critical. There are so many issues in our world in which people of integrity and principle disagree. And you have to create space for that And it's hard with students who are the age of most college students because at that point in your life, I mean, you know this, you're trying to figure out who you are, your points of view tend to be more absolute and sort of helping students develop that capacity seems to me one of the most important things we can do.
1: And modeling, I suppose, that kind of civil discourse as leaders and as faculty and as teachers too, which doesn't always happen. At least in my experience,
0: yeah, 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 one of the temptations is, I mean, certainly part of my temperament, but I think it's a temptation for a lot of people, is to think whenever anyone presents something about which they're unhappy, you think it's a problem you have to solve. And sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes it's just a truth they want to say, not a problem that you need to solve.
1: I think that is really insightful. And it's certainly true for our relationships generally. Sometimes with a friend or a loved one, you hear a problem or you hear an issue, you take in a struggle. And it's not really, the point is not to fix it. It's sometimes just to be there and just to hear it. And there's a lot of wisdom there and something I think maybe we need to incorporate into our organizations as well which is a good kind of transition to teaching. And I have a curiosity about what teaching must be like now at Berkeley and how much it's changed since I arrived in 1984, or maybe even more interesting since you arrived in 1970, how you think about teaching, what the focus is on teaching, what the issues are that faculty struggle with at this particular time in their teaching. And I wondered if I could invite you to reflect on that.
0: Yeah, that's such an interesting question. Of course, everything is so shaped by the pandemic, I've been teaching this year. I did freshman seminar last semester and doing one this semester. And it's a Zoom seminar, about 15 students on the screen like this. And I've been surprised at how relatively easy the transition was for me. Of course, it's just an hour discussion once a week about a book. It's not you know, very hard to do. But I think that for a faculty, they were thrown into the deep end of the swimming pool without swimming lessons given two days to go remote, and I've had so many faculty tell me, it's like I discovered a muscle I didn't even know I had, and they're not going to forget they have that muscle. And I think teaching is uh, the remote tools that we've developed over the past year are going to be part of our teaching toolbox moving forward after the pandemic ends that people keep telling me there's some things that work better remotely than they do in person. So one thing that's very recently different is, of course, the importance of the digital medium in teaching. Although even before the pandemic, it's just so much more was electronic than had been. And I tell a story often, which I kind of like, which I was—I uh, went to the Marin Shakespeare Theater and I was waiting for the play to start. It was An Ideal Husband by Oscar Wilde. And the friend that I went with and I were trying to remember who had starred in the movie. And so I took out my iPhone and I googled it. And my iPhone said, do you want to start watching this movie right now? And I (laughs) thought, this is so weird. Here I am sitting outside under the trees about to watch a live performance. And my iPhone is saying, I can show you the movie. And I just think it's amazing what we have. And that's one of the things, one of the ways in which... The teaching environment is just profoundly different, is um, all the modalities that our electronic devices and their reach give us. But another thing that's really important is when I started teaching at Berkeley in uh, 1970, it was largely almost entirely a white student body. And that's not the case now. And students bring such different experiences, backgrounds and identities to the classroom. And I think of the pandemic as being a huge inequity amplifier um, that you know, when stu- students have such different access to computing equipment, to even connectivity, to a quiet space to study in, to other things that are happening in their lives. But in some sense, there are things I think that remain constant. It's like the um, the founder of Williams says, "Higher education is fundamentally a student and a teacher sitting at opposite ends of a log, talking to each other." Mm-hmm. And there's still an element of that. Mm-hmm.
1: I really want to return to the conversation about uh, what we've learned from the pandemic and how we see ourselves moving forward. But before I do, just maybe staying with this issue of teaching and the diversity of the student body, and maybe to ask. How does it look different? Or how is the experience different? Or what does it call upon us as teachers, as professors? How does it manifest in the classroom in a, in a different kind of way?
0: Well, I think, in, I mean, there are probably many, many ways, but one thing is there is, and this is a good thing, less of a sense of a shared body of knowledge that we all have. And I hope for faculty some humility about the things that they don't know, that their students know.
1: Nice. So let's talk about our learnings from this pandemic and the experience that we've all been through here and maybe the most important way for me to ask the question for you is we're having a conversation or, or embarking just now on a conversation at Art center about what a post-pandemic art center might look like and it's based on you know what we've learned uh, from this experience how we think about facilities how we think about technology how we think as you indicated earlier what might stay online because it works really well and maybe even better online, how we're going to engage with each other. I'm interested in what some of your thinking is about it at this juncture.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I'd, I'd love to talk with you about the arts I mean, it's because it seems to me they've been more profoundly affected than just about any area of experience. I mean, so much of the arts, just I mean, you think about theater, what you do, there isn't any live theater. and And the few experiments that I've seen in Zoom theater, I don't think I've been very successful. Um, you know, and just, uh, you know, live music, live dance, all the things that I deeply love and are a big part of my life are just, you know, on hold as or, or in a profoundly different form uh, right now. But how Berkeley's thinking about this is we're thinking a lot about remote instruction, and the piece that this is going to be of our post-pandemic life, whether we can reach more people through remote instruction, uh, and I think of that as a great advantage, a great gain uh, for the campus. It might uh, afford students more what I, I've been calling elasticity of place, to be able to continue their work remotely and do something that would take them far from campus. So remote instruction is a big piece of it, but remote work is equally a big piece of it. So we just recently did a survey of our employees, and one of the questions on it was about remote work, and 60% of our employees want to maintain the um, opportunity to do all or much of their work remotely after the pandemic ends. So we're really rethinking buildings. (laughs) Right. Right. We don't think big lecture classes will ever be in person anymore. So we are designing a building for data science, and it was originally going to have a huge lecture hall in it. No more. We've eliminated that from the plans. We've eliminated plans for um, uh, more office space because we just don't think we're going to need as much office space. But one of the huge learnings from the pandemic has been for me that I've thought going into it, the big challenge was going to be Um, remote instruction. How could the faculty transition to remote instruction? And I found that that has been a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. But what has been so difficult for our students is the social isolation. And what you realize is how much more college or university is than classes. It's all the friendships that you develop. It's how you learn from your peers. It's the activities in which you engage. You know, it's one of the ways in which America imagines growing up is that you're in this place for four years and you really develop the beginnings of your adult identity in your college or university years. And, and that feels like it's been cut off. I was just talking to a student on Zoom the other day and she said, I, you know, it's so weird. I'm a freshman in my co- in college. I'm almost at the end of my freshman year, and here I am in my childhood bedroom all day. And the element of social isolation seems to me so much greater and so much heavy, a heavier burden for our students than I anticipated. We have really sharply rising levels of depression and anxiety.
1: And it profoundly affects the learning, right? I mean, it's that kind of loneliness impacts how we learn, or to put it in a more positive way, the existence of community, the building of community enhances learning in all kinds of ways, as you were just saying, that are critical to the experience, really. And I also believe that the loneliness of online learning, too, can cause, you know, there's a lot of attrition in online learning, too. And I think a lot of that has to do with because you're somehow outside of community. I mean, we can try to build that and there are ways in which we're being creative about trying to build it online, but that kind of connection with others and the difference it makes, that chance meeting with a teacher, with another student, a chance conversation, whatever it might be, is all about that it just builds the experience in such important ways.
0: Yeah, so spontaneity is much, much harder.
1: And we've actually started for our international students who couldn't come, we've built some community pods so that they have a place to go. We've sort of brought an art center to them in a way or a maker space or some kind of shop or whatever they can do within, you know, in a safe way, just to make sure that they're connecting in and being part of community somehow, yeah. which is such a critical element in all of this. It's interesting too that, you know, you touched on this a little bit in what you were saying, but for me, and this is kind of dizzying, but it's a whole new attitude about how we use facilities too. I mean, with a huge percentage of our administration not being on campus, maybe permanently working remotely. And what does that do? How can we convert some of those spaces into educational environments, uh, different kinds of studios and classrooms and ways of moving forward? Uh, What kinds of courses really work well online? How can we recruit faculty or even higher staff who actually don't live here, who don't come here. Maybe they're in another part of the country where they live internationally, and yet they're an integral part of our community. These are the kinds of questions that we're trying to wrestle with, and they're fascinating to me to see what, you know, and it's all spurred on by what we've learned from this pandemic experience.
0: That's right. One of the things that's really interesting to me is, of course, travel has fallen away, but that also means that people you would never get to to give a guest lecture or something like that.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: You know, an hour out of my day, fine. I'll turn on my computer. Here I am.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. As we move to wrap up a little bit, a couple of questions for you. One is that half of the Art Center mission statement is actually about how we influence change. And I'm always curious uh, to talk to people about how they think about the change they've influenced in their lives. And I want to ask you about that. How do you think about change and the change you've impacted or you've been able to create in the work that you've done as as a teacher, as a leader, as an administrator?
0: Oh, that's such an interesting question. I mean, as a teacher, quite apart from the actual content of what you teach, the books, the... you know teaching students how to write. The teaching I'm proudest of is when you, I'm sure you know this experience, when you lead a student to discover their voice, when you give them confidence in their own intellect. That's so thrilling to me. I've taught so many students who are, you get this kind of student at Berkeley, I'm sure you know that, so many students who are incredibly bright but don't know they are, it is so gratifying to see a student um, develop in that way in which she gets confidence in her own voice when she starts to understand her own intelligence. So that's, to me, what's exciting about, about teaching. In terms of institutional change, that's a more complex question and a metaphor that I often use when I when I talk to people about administration is, I said, when you take an administrative position, you step into a river, and the river has come from someplace before you step into it. And when you step out of it, it's going to go someplace else. So I feel very strongly the value of, I call it, historical humility, that you respect the course of the institution, if you will at the same time that you're really trying to shape it, to change it. And when you're successful, it becomes separate from you, which is really, really exciting. Mm. Uh, For example, I was working on a retention case um, this morning in uh, uh, neuroscience. And when I was provost in the 90s at Berkeley, I helped create this program. And now it's a fabulous program, and one of the young faculty that we recruited at that point was being recruited away. I'm very glad. I think we persuaded him to stay. But it just, you have this really excited sense that, yes, this thing that I worked on or this idea that I had, I certainly didn't have the idea of neuroscience, but other ideas that I've had have taken root and now they're separate from me and they're part of the institution. And that's what's really, I think, exciting. That's when you think you've achieved some kind of institutional creativity.
1: Oh, how lovely. And you've been around long enough, well, you left for a while, but you've come back. You can see that. Yeah. And you can see it continued and form its own kind of life in its own own direction, yeah. I
0: remember the years when you were chairman of dramatic art, it's very different now but that was the, it, you know the beginning of the change and uh so it's just it, it, to me that's what motivates you to do this kind of stuff
1: talk about heady days my friend those were those were uh,
0: <laughs> there's <was> a <laughs>
1: lot of learning that happened for me in those days yeah certainly were Uh, So finally, last question. I remember, and I was reminded as I was reading about you, you have your own creative endeavors, I mean, with music in particular, correct? With piano and-
0: Yeah, I play the piano and the viola.
1: And are you you doing that? Are you involved in
0: that? Actually, it's one of the good things about the pandemic because I don't do evening events, I don't travel. I play the piano pretty much every day and it's really- You know, the Zoom universe is so tiring, and there's so many things that are genuinely really hard in the decisions that reach you. And it feels so good at the end of the day to go home and play the piano for an hour. It just takes me to a different place.
1: Well, Carol, thank you so much. Thank you. It's wonderful to reconnect. It was such a great conversation. And I'm deeply, deeply grateful, again, for your willingness to do this, but also to bring that phrase back for your gentle wisdom and for all that you are able to offer. it's a, You're an important figure in my life, and it's great to reconnect.
0: It's a, such a pleasure to see you, and I, I would love to have a second conversation. Would you tell me about your life and what it's like for you these days?
1: Great. Well, let's do it. Thank you. Thank you. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to thank our small but mighty production staff producer Christine Spines, co producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olen. If you like what you've heard and want to hear more of it, please take the time to review and give us a star rating in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.